You know, Seated in the Studio is one of the most distinguished, I feel, one of the most exciting and creative American novelists, and now you might say short story writer as well, E.L. Doctorow, who is best known, of course, for ragtime, but more than that, each of his novels, one succeeding the other, seems to be written by a different person. It's as though he's reinventing or inventing it again and again. And he's in Chicago now, by the way, in connection with his most recent work, Lives of the Poets, which is a novella and six stories. And he, of course, he'll talk about this. It's a fascinating theme, how they all connect and become one. And it's published, Lives of the Poets, published by Random House and is now available. And as you see it here, I was thinking, Mr. Doctor, oh, the that idea that one picks up, somebody picks up an earlier book, the book of Daniel, dealing as it does peripherally, but nonetheless definitely with a case of our time, the Rosenbergs commenting on it, a certain period. Before that, welcome to hard times, a western that's different from other westerns, and then ragtime, then loon lake. Each one seems to be of a different form, like one, somebody could nev- would not recognize the same writer. Yeah, I, I, it seems to be that way with me. Uh, of course, I tend to see the the um, similarity uh, among the books, the uh, the preoccupations that come up again and again. But I think perhaps the um, the sense of of um, moving on is um, characteristic of the way is a result of the way I write, which is never to begin with any clear uh, programmed idea in mind, but just to uh, write to uh, find out what it is I'm writing. And so um, it's a kind of radar I do uh, until I get a blip and then I head for it. Some guy might say, you're a Zen writer (laughs) in that approach. Well, that's interesting. I would accept any favorable uh, ascription. (laughs) The the fact that you, you start don't we, we we know that you don't have a beginning you may have a beginning middle end but it's not a hack writer would have every page worked out we know that and something happens as you're doing it something unexpected happens under under your pen or under the finger of your yeah. touching the key of the I think writer. I learned that's the most important thing I learned as a young writer I you know when I started out I was very methodical and I intended to write books, and I planned them, and I researched them, and I outlined them, and I talked about them. I did everything but write them. And when the time came to write them, there was nothing left to do. Um, the, the French artist Marcel Duchamp had a great line once. He's, they, he apparently stopped painting certain work along in his career, and one of his friends said, Marcel, why have you stopped painting? He said, because too much of it is filling in. Mm. And that's what you don't want to get uh, into as a writer. You don't want to be in the position of filling in what you already know. You want to trust the act of writing to reveal to you what you don't know you know. There's something else you said earlier, moving on. You spoke as though you were exploring a phrase that used the geography of the mind. Moving on. Each, Each book, whether it be the novel or the short stories plus novella, that turns out to be one really is it's beyond the one you did before it's not a variation on it but it's not it's true that each book uh, sets you further down the road and so in fact you do find yourself starting all over again 
And the illusion you have um, after a while is that uh, you're starting from the beginning. You're in a new territory. Uh, you've, you've never mapped it before. You've never charted before. And you, so you, you begin from scratch. It's as if you don't know anything about writing and you've never written a word before. So you're lighting out for the territory. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe uh, what you eventually find is some territory that uh, resists you. Then and you hang up your spurs and, and go yet, home. And yet there is a common denominator. Even though the style and the substance of each succeeding work is different from the one that preceded it, there's a common denominator as a public as well as private, as someone spoke about, not simply the inward looking, but out as well. I grew up um, on all the great uh, novelists who um, who somehow connected the private lives of their citizens, uh, the citizens of the books, with what was going on at the time publicly. And those are the writers I love, Dickens and Jack London and... Uh, Dreiser, uh, it's a uh, it's the sort of the tradition of s the social novel of social fiction. One of my um, feelings about American fiction in the past uh, twenty or thirty years is that it's um, it's pulled in its horns. It's gone. It's retreated f for several reasons and uh, gone inside the house and closed the door and pulled the shades and and made the house and the family. The, um, the realm of the novel. Now, a lot of great, wonderful stuff is done out of this um, uh, instinct, but um, I think about the uh, street outside and the town beyond and the highway beyond the town, and, and um, it may be a result, fiction writers have done this because their authority has been um, uh, questioned to such a degree by... Um, by science, by uh, our great respect in this country for the scientific disciplines, empirical disciplines in sciences and the social sciences. And the social sciences have taken over uh, a large part of the, um, the domain that used to be the novelist, the sociologist who describes uh, ethnic groups, for instance, or the anthropologist and uh, the qualities of life of people in different professions and in different societies is doing a novelist's work. Mm. Um, and there were the novelist, because since his, his, his territory has been somewhat usurped, not really, but that, that's handled in a certain way by a nonfiction writer, nonfiction workman, that they have to go inward more. Is yeah, I, th I think that has been uh, to say, well, if I'm if I don't know as much as these guys about you know, what's going on down the road, I do know what's going on in my house, yeah. and that's what I'll, my mind, that's what I'll talk about. I think Lives of the Poets picks up on that in the sense of, of um, delivering or mapping the mind of a, of a writer and ironically dealing uh, with his own uh, uh, personal problems and the, sort of the underside of his life uh, in much the way this sort of fiction I'm talking about does. Lives of the Poets that received some very provocative reviews, very exciting ones too, is a novella and six stories. This is a form you've never tried before. Short story. You speak of the short story and the novel, almost two different art forms. Oh yes, I, I think the mind of the short story writer and the novelist are two different minds. 
the the story writer uh, looks for the moment, looks for the significant moment, the uh, of of great moral consequence, and writes his story around that. And the 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 modern short story convention is that we happen to we'll happen to be present at this moment in a person's life when um, something will occur, and that person will never be the same again. And uh, uh, the classic model for this, of course, you find in Dubliners and James Joyce. Um, but the novelist doesn't think that way. The novelist looks always for connections, always for the, for the widest possible spread, and for ongoing um, uh, connectives that, so that you could say, and then this is what happened, and then that's what happened, and then because of this, that happened. And so when I found myself doing these stories, I wasn't satisfied um, with them as individual pieces. I thought they were really in themselves a sequence of mental acts and that there was a connection among them and that they asked more questions than they answered. So there had to be something beyond them. And what I discovered was that uh, the connection was uh, the presence, I felt, of, of a, a writing intelligence who was creating these pieces. And it wasn't me, it was a fictive writer. And so that's how the novella came about. No, that, this is connected. This is what you're saying, of course, is, is incredibly interesting to me. Each of these stories is wholly different, not simply in substance, but in style as well. We talk about these six stories. Seemingly disconnected, they are connected because the novella at the end, the novella, Lives, which is the title of the book itself, mm -hmm lives of the poets is about this guy who who wrote all these stories but did you have the novella in mind when you wrote that first story or the second or third uh, i may and i may not have um because that first story will answer the question because it's about a boy who That's the writer asked, in the family yes who's asked by his aunts to write letters to his ancient grandmother on behalf of his recently deceased father. So he starts to do this and then uh, son somehow uh, rebels and in writing the letters learns something about his father that he didn't know he knew. So his discoveries are intuitive, which is the way I think writers work. And uh, uh, he's pretty hard on himself till he realizes that he understood in the act of writing the letters what the truth was about his father's life. And I think that's the way the writer's mind works. So to answer your question, I didn't know that the novella would be done, but I did know. Somehow you know and you don't know at the same time, just as this boy knows about yeah. the truth of his father but doesn't. Before we take the break, this is, completes a circle right here before this break. And as I ask you, whether you had the novella in mind when you wrote that first story or any of the six. You're saying, while the writing, this boy in the story, who's lying for his aunt, saying his father, when writing to his grandmother, uh, his father's mother, that he's alive, even though he's really dead, lying, he's suddenly discovering things about his father, who's been used by others and controlled. And he's trying to control him. Suddenly it explodes in his mind, this is you, then, or the writer of mm. the central figure of the novella, who is discovering... Well, you were dis describing writing earlier. 
yourself. Yes. He, How through. under your hand something happens. Yeah. Under his hand something That's it. happens. That's it, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about uh, the book, of course, is Lives of the Poets, uh, the most recent work of E.L. Doctorow, my guest, uh, Random House, the publisher. It's a very exciting reading, by the way. Maybe you heard my reading last week of your story, uh, the, the first one, and I found it very exciting, even the reading of it. But you're going to read one, too, for us here. It'll be my pleasure. So after this message, we'll resume with E.L. Doctorow. Resuming with my guest, uh, you know him, of course, for Ragtime, both the the uh, uh, the book and the film, and for Loon Lake. And Loon Lake will come to that, too, with a different one, as well as for uh, Book of Daniel that became the film Daniel. And earlier work, by the way, a lesser-known work, called Welcome to Hard Times, that is a wholly different kind of Western. But you were talking, this in connection with uh, your most recent work, you know, uh, Lives of the Poets. You were, you were still on that theme of what you felt, not a retreat, but an inward look of contemporary novelists, and you were looking out. Well, yes, there has been this uh, drift um, uh, inward, and it actually has produced some um, uh, real literature of, of consequence. But um, um, it's also had some uh, interesting effects. And one of the um, things I think has happened as a result of the retreat of fiction has been the rise of uh, oral history as a popular form, uh, as, for example, in your books. Uh, I think the, the, the work you have done, going around talking to people and getting, getting them to talk about their lives and the work they do and what they did in the war and so on, is a, is a consequence of, of the kind of separation of loss of, of um, magnitude in the art of fiction generally, and so people are filling the, the vacuum themselves. They, uh, they are um, reporting on their own lives, and in, in doing for themselves, you could make the point uh, in, in oral history, as it's practiced, of what the writers aren't doing for them, reporting on uh, the work they do and uh, what happened to them during the Depression and so on and so forth. Uh, one of the things that interests me about oral history, which I read quite a bit of, is that um, people are authorities on their own lives, and uh, and they they know they think narratively, and they tell stories about they compose their lives into stories, and they use all the techniques that we use. They they know about conflict and. Uh, uh, good guys and bad guys, and res suspense and resolution of the conflict. And as as uh, people who understand narrative, they suggest altogether. It seems to me that uh, telling a story is natural to the human race. As for instance, um, it's a natural aptitude. Maybe a math might not be the be the ability to do numbers and figure things out arithmetically. It seems to be not a, a universal capacity, but I think storytelling might be. So I, I think that's a very interesting consequence of sort of unconscious social perception that the fiction writers are not doing everything they should be doing. Yeah, that phrase you use about uh, ordinary, quote-unquote ordinary people are experts on their own lives. The word expert, the word expertise, a terrible word, you know, mm -hmm. a new part of our lexicon. As as though there were 
some few who know more than others. We know there are some, of course, there are scholars. I'm talking about that. But when it comes to public issues and private lives, the people who live those lives are, are best equipped to tell. Now, to find that kind of person who is a storyteller, and now we come to something, perhaps I know that what attracts you, storytelling is what you're doing and what people are hungry for today more than ever. Storytelling, mm. the key to almost everything, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think it's the, the earliest way the human race has had to understand anything. And uh, you can see this in, uh, in all the uh, mythic works of the ancient cultures. You can see it certainly in the Bible, which is a repository of um, fantastic, great stories. Um, this has always been the way to understand life and how it works and, and what's happening to you. And um, so you, you, one thinks of the, uh, this immense population and all the kinds of life that are lived and how little of it is actually reported by the formal storytellers. The quality of, of life, of an event in life of people who who do different kinds of work and who are d members of, of different uh, professions and yeah, know I, different things. I'm reminded of something. I think you'd like this. Uh, storytelling, people in the books and some of the oral histories. Uh, there's a guy I'm interviewing. I'm talking to him, rather. He's living in this trailer. He's from Appalachia. He works, he does utilities work, a variety of work at an auto plant in South Chicago. And I said, what's your day like? And we're talking about details, uh, you know, whether it be in you or in Dickens and the writers you admire, the detail of daily life, the drama that suddenly, or the humor that emerges. I said, what's your, start in the beginning. You wake up in the morning. He says, I wake up in the morning, I open one eye. I, I hear the clock radio, and I say, and then I open, I kiss my wife who's sleeping next to me. That's routine, you understand? That's routine. <laughs> and then I get up and I go to the bathroom. I comb my one hair. He's a comic, so I comb my one hair. I sit down and there's a cup of coffee. But you know, on some days it might be half a cup. I may not want the second. I have a piece of toast. Then again, it might be two pieces. <laughs> then I get in the car. I got to get to the plan on time. My wife comes out. I kiss her again. That's routine, you understand? Now I got to get to the plan on time. Because if you come a minute late, you're docked for an hour. Now, as he's describing the route now, where he is in South Chicago, there are many railroad crossings, and the freight trains are going back and forth, maybe a hundred at a time. If he gets there wrong, he's stuck for 15 minutes, and he's bound to be late. So he describes the devious way he gets to the plant on time. It's comical, it's dramatic, and it's true. And then I come across a guy quote-unquote scholar, not really a scholar, but someone, a pedant, say, who says, I get up in the morning and I go to my philosophy one class and it's Plato, uh, some reflections, and that's all gone. So we're talking about the storyteller. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it could be someone unlettered, mm -hmm. but a natural oh, born. yeah, sure. The, um, uh, the ability to tell a story partly consists of making ordinary, um, um, uneventful moments uh, uh, tremendously meaningful and valuable. And a good storyteller seems to me um, uh, can put a spell on you 
so that you don't realize that all he's saying is he gets up in the morning and he goes to work. Yeah. That's all he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, th- you know, I think uh, the the first really wonderful storyteller I ever knew was my mother, who had a way of dramatizing her days and uh, experiences just in this way. She'd come home from shopping and say, guess who I met? And so you're immediately interested, well, who? And then she tells whatever it is about some woman she met shopping. And, and no matter how small the actual event it is, it has immense consequence yeah. because she she Funny knew how to, uh, she knows how to tell stories. Yeah, yeah uh, that the story, but also sometimes gestures become dramatic. The gesture is also part of the story. Uh, Richard Huggard, in a book called Uses of Literacy, is speaking of Lawrence, D.H. Lawrence, talking about his mother, his minor's wife, or his mother, mm-hmm. uh, and the way she would drum, she would drum her fingers on the table or rock in a chair in a certain calculated way. Mm-hmm. And she's really telling you with that gesture what the life was like. It's got to be calculated very, very carefully, mm. almost telling a story in gesture. We have to come to lives of the poets again. We, we're skirting it and talking about it. The very first, there, there are six stories, and yet all six, in a sense, finally are connected, though they're different in form and by the guy himself, this writer, at the very end is the novella. He's involved with all sorts of daily trivia, too, and gossip, but there's a search here for something else. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> what what happened, as, as I was saying, when the stories were finished, is that I made the discovery that I should uh, write uh, the, uh, the novella um, to explain the source of the story, explain where they came from. And then um, as I was doing that, I realized what I had an opportunity to do was to show a man's mind, both in its uh, formal compositions and its its own chatter, its own um, uh, unarty brain work. And um, to me, one of the key images uh, is uh, he goes on the subway and he sees a fellow talking to himself. You know, you see people like that in the street and in the subways, and and he calls him an audible brain. And he said, that's the guy for me. That guy invented me. He was here before the bulls of Lascaux. This, this is the source of storytelling. This is the source of, uh, this is my ancestor. And that's what the novella is. It's kind of an audible, a brain made audible, a brain wired for its own broadcast. So you get to see, I hope, these f- read these formal compositions and then uh, have a look at the brain that composed them. And of course to discover on the underside of the stories all of the uh, less than noble uh, workings of this man's minds and so uh, problems his, he has. Out of his brain, out of and exploring the geography of his mind, wandering through it, comes first six the six stories that were written before the novella mm. actually weren't mm-hmm. they they were yeah, yeah actually yeah. that's it. it's again the the intuitive process yeah. is there well you can play back and forth between them um, I, I appreciate the remark of one of the critics Peter Prescott of Newsweek who said you could read the book as a collection of stories or as a novel or as both mm-hmm. simultaneously yeah. and I, I yeah, that's the idea yeah. that was the idea to to somehow um, deliver 
one mind yeah. in in all its aspects, both yeah. the, its formal presentation and its kind of own naked uh, being. Yeah. Before I ask you to read uh, a shorter one for the purposes of this hour, the second story, the first one, and perhaps can touch on the other four as well. The first one, you, we touched on the, the young guy in the family writing these letters at the behest of a, of a more affluent aunt who's got authority to his grandmother who's in a nursing home. Why don't you tell, and he's making these discoveries. He goes, it's funny and also moving, but it's also part of your theme, isn't it? You finally got to tell the truth. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you know, in many families, um, the members of the family try to protect other members from um, bad news one way or another. And um, uh, this boy's father dies, and um, his grandmother's very old, so his aunts decide not to tell her that her son has died. And in order to uh, succeed in this deception, they have to have letters from him because they've told the old lady that he's gone to Arizona for his health because they're New York family and he's gone out for his bronchitis or some such thing. And so one of the aunts asks this young boy who is thought of as the writer in the family to compose letters and sign his dead father's name to them and send them to the old woman in the nursing home. Well, that's the situation of the story and how the boy reacts and the effects on his mo mother, the widow, and his older brother, and their struggle to survive this loss. Uh, that's what the story is about. But finally, he has to tell the truth. Yeah. He, 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 he's driven, finally. Because the old man's life was, as you said, one of the critics said it, uh, the, uh, his father's life was so controlled, it seemed by others, that you can't con don't control his death either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> free, free him, free at last, yeah. great God Almighty, free at last. <laughs> <laughs> talking to Ed Doctorow, E.L. Doctorow, Lives of the Poets, novella and six stories, Random House, the Publishers, and it's very exciting reading and another string to his bow. And after this message, perhaps he can read one of the stories and. I have a reflection on this particular one, how it makes his point, really, about opening that window to other matters after this message. Resuming with the, with the L. Dr. O. and Lives of the Poets, we talked about that first story in it, uh, the writer and the fan. Now we come to a second one. This is string, The Waterworks. The time seems to be almost the time of ragtime, of a turn of the century. Early. Yeah, it has a... a yeah, well, I, w I would. Th I think it's uh, probably earlier than that. I think of it as having a, a definitely 19th-century tone. And, you know, that's one of the uh, uh, things you can do almost entirely with diction um, uh, to suggest a period of time. Of course, you have furnishing in the story, and if you describe a horse and a carriage, you. Yeah. That's a big clue as to what yeah. where you are in time, but also the the way the sentences are composed and the uh, the kind of language that's used, the diction, does uh, a lot of that work for you in sort of locating uh, a specific uh, place and time. As as I was reading it the other day to myself and then out loud, I always think of a piece of music that goes along, and perhaps you read the story and let me be the director for the moment. Now, this piece of music, All right. it, it, it's an early English dirge, but it seems to fit the mood, the theme, and the time 
of this story. So E.L. Doctor reading one of the stories from Lives of the Poets. This ain't neat, this ain't neat, any neat and all, fire and fleet and candle eat, and Christ receive thy soul. If thou from here away dost pass, any neat and all, to Winnie thou comest at last, and Christ receive thy soul. If thou the waterworks. I had followed my man here. Everything he did was mysterious to me, and his predilection for the waterworks this November day was no less so. A square granite building with crenellated turrets at the corners, it stood hard by the reservoir on a high plain overlooking the city from the north. There was an abundance of windows through which, however, no light seemed to pass. I saw reflected the sky behind me, a tumultuous thing of billowing shapes of grey tumbling through vaults of pink sunset and with black rain clouds sailing overhead like an armada. His carriage was in the front yard. His horse pawed the stony ground and swung its head about to look at me. The reservoir behind the building, five or six city blocks in area, was crated in an embankment that went up from the ground at an angle, suggesting the pyramidal platform of an ancient civilization, Mayan perhaps. On Sundays in warm weather, people came here from the city and climbed the embankment, calling out to one another as they rose to the sight of a squared expanse of water. This day it was his alone. I heard the violent chop, the insistent slap of the tides against the cobblestone. He stood a ways out in the darkening day. He was studying something upon the water, my black-bearded captain. He held his hat brim. The corner of his long coat took the wind and pressed against his leg. I was sure he knew of my presence. Indeed, for some days I had sensed from his actions a mad presumption of partnership, as if he engaged in his enterprises for our mutual benefit. I climbed the embankment a hundred or so yards to his east and faced into the wind to see the object of his attention. It was a toy boat under sail, rising and falling in heavy swells at alarming heel, disappearing and then reappearing all a tumble, water pouring off her sides. We watched her for several minutes, she disappeared and rose and again disappeared. There was a rhythm to this to lull the perception, and some moments passed before I realized, waiting for her rising, that I waited in vain. I was as struck in the chest with the catastrophe as if I had stood on some cliff and watched the sea take a sailing vessel. When I thought to look for my man, he was running across the wide moat of hardened earth that led to the rear gates of the waterworks. I followed. Inside the building I felt the chill of entombed air and heard the orchestra of water hissing and roaring in its fall. I ran down a stone corridor and found another that offered passage to the left or right. I listened. I heard his steps clearly, a metallic rap of heels echoing from my right. At the end of the dark conduit was a flight of iron stairs rising circularly about a black steel gear shaft. Around I went, rising, and reaching the top story I found the view opening out from a catwalk over a vast inner pool of roiling water. This hellish churn pounded up a mineral mist like a fifth element in whose sustenance there grew on the blackened stone face of the far wall a profusion of moss and slime. 
Above me was a skylight of translucent glass. By its dim light, I discovered him not five feet from where I stood. He was bent over the rail with a rapt expression of the most awful intensity. I thought he would topple, so unaware of himself did he seem in that moment. I found the sight of him in his passion almost unendurable. So again I looked at what he was seeing, and there below in the yellowing rush of spumed currents and water plunging into its mechanical harness, a small human body was pressed against the machinery of one of the sluice gates, its clothing caught as in some hinge, and the child, for it was a miniature like the ship in the reservoir, went slamming about first one way and then the next, as if in mute protest, trembling and shaking and animating by its revulsion the death that had already overtaken it. Someone shouted, and after a moment I saw, as if they had separated from the stone, three uniformed men poised on a lower ledge. They were well apprised of the situation. They were heaving on a line strung from a pulley fixed in the far wall, and by this means advancing a tow line attached to the wall bell below my catwalk where I could not see. But now into view he came, another of the water workers, suspended from a sling by the ankles, his hands outstretched as he waited to be aligned so that he could free the flow of this obstruction. And then he had him, raised from the water by his shirt, an urchin anywhere from four to eight, I would have said, drowned blue, and then by the ankles and shoes. And so suspended both, they swung back across the pouring currents rhythmically, like performing aerialists, till they were out of sight below me. I wondered, perhaps from the practice quality of their maneuver, if the water workers were not accustomed to such impediments. A few minutes later, in the yard under the darkened sky, I watched my man load the wrapped corpse into his carriage, shut the door smartly, and leap then to the high seat where he commanded his horse with a great rolling snap of the reins. And off it went, the bright black wheel spokes brought to a blur as the dead child was raced to the city. The rain had begun. I went back in and felt the oppression of a universe of water, inside and out, over the dead and the living. The water workers were dividing some treasure among themselves. They wore the dark blue uniform with the high collar of the city employee, but amended with rough sweaters under the tunics and with trousers tucked into their high boots. It was not an enviable employment here. I could imagine in human lungs the same flora that grew on stone. Their faces were bright and flushed, their blood urged to the skin by the chill, and their skin brought to a high glaze by the mist. They saw me and made a great show of not caring. They broke out the whiskey for their tin cups. There is such a cherishing of ritual, too, among firemen and grave diggers. This ain't neat, this ain't neat, any neat and low. Fire and fleet and candle and Christ receive thy soul if thou from I was thinking Ed, your doctor as you read this strange dark very short story uh, the waterworks of another time so that song came to my mind as I was reading it mm. see. but there are certain phrases his earlier you were saying about there's a street outside there's the room, the cork-lined room, and the street outside. And the window has to be open to something out there. There's something public as well as private. The challenge to the right of the day in this last third of the 20th century. And it, you, to me, as I read it, I suddenly thought of some guy from an oral history, a, a 
cop who does the same work that these guys do, these guys who pull this little kid out, this tragedy, obviously bloated kid, this is in the 19th century somewhere, these water workers, and you said it's not an enviable work, and there's a practice quality to their maneuver as they lift the kid, like performing aerialists, and now they're dividing the treasure among themselves, and here's the thing, the sentence that hit me. They saw me and made a great show of not caring, and they broke open the whiskey for their cups. And this is a ritual among firemen and gravediggers. They made a show of not caring. Now, how does one do this work? This fireman, his name is Bob Gates. Listen to his voice now. Because to me, I suppose this is a revelatory phrase that you're, it exploded. And I thought of Bob Gates. And let's hear this, these guys who make a show of not caring, because they do this every day. Because this guy pulls floaters out of the water, and he picks up jumpers, they call that. Or somebody who's been hanging. Well, let Bob Gates tell it, the natural-born storyteller. Well, when I first got transferred into emergency service, I was in emergency service a, a week, and we had a collision, a head-on collision on a Bell Parkway in Brooklyn, where uh, a car had jumped the divider, cleared the divider, and went head-on into an oncoming car going eastbound. And there was a family in the car, and I was just passing by it when it happened. And we stopped the car, we jumped out, went across the roadway, and there was uh, uh, parents in there of a girl and a boy, about six or five years old. And uh, I had carried out the girl in the back and placed her on the ground. She had no face. And the boy I carried out, and I said to myself, if this is emergency service, these are things that the public don't know about. I just, uh, I'd rather go back to Bedford Stuyvesant. And then after, you have, sometimes you have 11 jobs in a night, uh, bad accidents, accidents where I'd held guys, uh, guys' eyes in their head. I mean, uh, where they had actually hit the dashboard and told us to take the skin off the windshield and bring it back to the hospital. They could use it. Kids' hands caught in standpipes, uh, animal conditions, vicious dogs, uh, vicious bites where you have to get the dog, where I had to shoot dogs in the street, German shepherds, where the kids would curse at me for doing it because the dog was foaming at the mouth and snapping at everybody that was near him. Mm -hmm. They'd come up behind him and put three bullets in his head. And the kids react. You want to get the kid out of there as far back as you can. But he sees the cop in blue shooting the dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's he going to think of a cop doing that? He's not going to like the cop. What about the, the uh, attentions? You said you come home with attentions then? You said your hand was trembling. And yeah. It's happened frequently now? Well, the worst was the accident <coughs> with the family. You know, that was the one that kept me awake. The, I see. the first night I went right to sleep. The second night, then you start thinking, you start picturing the kids, yourself taking them out. Th then there's so many others, like I caught myself uh, dancing in the middle of the living room, trying to take a ring off a DOA in the bed for a month to, 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 to cut his ring off his finger while the maggots were jumping all over my pants. And I, I just put the damn pants on, brand new, everything was dry clean, and go back to the precinct and, and still itch and jump in the shower. And uh, things you start thinking about after the job's over, yeah. what you did. Like my wife plenty of times asked me, how can you do that? You know, how can you go under a train with a person that severed the legs off and then uh, come home and eat breakfast or, or you know, feel the... Uh, that's what I'm waiting for, the point where 
I can go home and not feel anything for my family. Where I have to feel that uh, live three different lives as a cop. I never realized this when I took the test, when I got on. You know, and to look across the breakfast table at your son because I'm there and I don't have to be, but I want to be. Uh, it made me feel like uh, I'm still, a, you know, maybe a while away from feeling like I have no feelings left. I knew I still had feelings left. So I still have quite a few jobs to go before I get that, that far, you know. That, that's what your sentence did to me. They saw me and made a great show of not caring. He's a, a natural storyteller, this fellow, isn't he? Bob Gates. His brother, Tom Gates, the fireman, who ends working, is my favorite. Uh, he, their father is a certain guy, too. Uh, they come, I think, about <laughs> say genetically. Mm. They're natural-born storytellers, and you find they're everywhere. But I thought of your story, mm. your story, that suddenly opens up the reality in a wholly different way. Well, it's a mysterious, ambiguous story. Um, the there's it seems to me you can you can read it this way as you have. Um, there is it also has some negative aspects. One can say, well, what 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 was that black bearded man doing? Did he push the kid in the water? Did he happen to be there? Um, um, and why did he race him off to the city? And what about the fellow who followed him, the speaker, the narrator? Mm -hmm. What's that all about? And um, there's a line there about how well, they, the water workers seem to be pocketing something as if, well, what's that about? Did the man pay them off in some way? So uh, what are they doing? Is it exemplary or is it somehow insidious and uh, evil? And... Uh, I don't know the answer to so these questions. There's ambiguity there, yeah. It's, what what got me going was was the imagery. You know, in the in the story that precedes it, that's a story about a boy who, uh, in writing these letters on behalf of his dead father, is trying to separate from his father, trying to reconcile the death and go on with his own life. The second story about this little kid in the reservoir is a, is a, could be seen as a, a kid who didn't manage that separation. Mm -hmm. it, it, who and didn't. then, but it's funny, you see, so there's an ambiguity, suddenly a mystery theme comes in. And I thought of the one following, the black-bearded man, as a small boy, in my own mind, mm -hmm. because there was a young boy in the first story, young writer, about to be writer, Small, because the next is a small boy, Willie. Mm. Let's just take one more break and then continue with this third, just at least references to the other stories. And why I thought in all these cases thus far, small boy. You know, it's, it, that's after this message. And it's Ed Doctorow, E.L. Doctorow, the writer. And if we could just resume, we're talking about the first two stories, how they all different, disparate seemingly, yet related to the novella at the end. The kittens came out of this guy's, you see, mind. And I imagined small boys being the, or a young guy in the first story, a small boy in the second. It could be an adult following the black-bearded man. There's a third story called Willie. Again, another time, another place, another memory. Yeah, Willie is a, um, is a, um, 
I, if we were going to put music to behind a reading of Willie, it would have to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, a Hungarian Rhapsody or a, uh, some sort of wild uh, Eastern European dance. It's a story that takes place in uh, Galicia in 1910 or thereabouts, and it tells the uh, grim circumstances of a boy, uh, the son of a wealthy farm owner, who um, witnesses um, one of the acts of love between his mother and his tutor. And in um, attempting to deal with this, uh, manages to uh, destroy his entire family in telling the truth. In telling the truth. To his father. So once again, we seem to have, this is all something I, I noticed only after the pieces were done, you understand, a, a, um, a protagonist whose um, who's own moral life and self-realization is very much uh, in the balance, um, as it always is with young people. And um, um, how he deals with this and where he goes uh, from it. Well, it happens that um, uh, this none of the reviewers have picked up on this aspect of it, but uh, this story is loosely based on an actual event in the life of the um, great uh, early psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich, Willie, mm. and um, who oh, in so fact. it's Willie. Yes, and um, we published the story in the Atlantic Monthly, and uh, uh, one or two of the readers picked up on it. They say, this sounds like the uh, mm. childhood of mm. Wilhelm Reich, and I said, yes, that's absolutely mm. right. Well, you don't need to know that to read the story, no. and to uh, you do find out why this particular writer, the writer who we talk about in Lives of the Poets, is uh, thinking about Reich. But in any event, the first three stories certainly are directly about children mm. and um, the, their uh, attempt to find freedom. You know, I was, I was, before you told me about Reich just now, I was about to ask you whether that story, the ba or the source of that story, or the inspiration, or the impulse to write it, came from something you may have heard somewhere way, way back, mm. and now you just told me. Yeah, well, you, what interested me about it uh, when I heard about Reich as a child was that he more or less enacted very violently the principles of psychoanalysis mm. before he went on to become a, a shrink. Mm. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about the three other stories. You know, it's, the hour is almost up talking to a doctor and the hunter, the foreign legation, and the leather man. And all three are so different. Then now there's a switch. There's certainly there's a mystery to the hunter, the school teacher in this industrial bleak town. And she's quite a character herself. You know, will she be the victim of some violence, or is she herself an actress, you see? Well, the... the um it, at that point in the book, the um, children begin to take a subsidiary role. They're very much her concerns, and she's a teacher in this sort of dying town, dying industrial town. But um, what seems to come through here at this point in the book is um, the isolation of adults, and both in uh, The Hunter, the story of this young teacher, trying to deal with just one class of children in an em otherwise empty school. And in the two subsequent stories before the novella, uh, what I see is a kind of uh, 
annotation of of uh, isolated people. The following story is about a divorced man who foreign legation, a foreign legation who runs through his own neighborhood, um, is uh, compulsively every day and um, passes residences of foreign legations, and. Um, fantasizes about children himself and then is uh, witness to an act of violence uh, uh, directed at one of the foreign legations. It almost sounds also, there's a touch to me also, because of a certain private guilt that he has because of his own personal life. Yeah. He suddenly feels a public, it, it just shoots out and suddenly feels, am I guilty of this horrible thing if I didn't live a different life? Yeah. This horrible thing outside his private life. I um, it's uh, it's all very puzzling to me. You know, when you do this sort of work, you just do it, and um, you just try to make it uh, presentable to yourself. It's only later, after it's done, that you begin to wonder what it is and how it works and why it's there. And then finally, before the novella, the Leather Man which now becomes his star, at least to me. There are marginal people involved, certain romantic impulses, there are certain events you talk about. So it becomes historical as though it's finishing, as though we're now coming, as though a circle is almost ending. Yeah, it's as if he has started this uh, writer in the past with children and moved up into adulthood and yeah. something uh, almost futuristic about the Leather Man, I think, now. We're talking... To E.L. Doctorow, Lives of the Poets, a novella and six stories. Very exciting reading. Out loud, too, by the way, as well as to yourself. Random House of the Publishers. And delighted your guest this morning here. It's been a great pleasure, Stutz. And uh, more to come, of course. Thank you very much. Lives of the Poets. Maria Dudi, Besokszor jól laktam róla, Lesett a csizmám, megálljatok, Visszamegyek érte, megvárjatok. Ó, boldogságos szücsmiska, Csak a szárát fordítsd vissza.